Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We're coming to you today to talk about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both to mourn her loss and to celebrate her legacy. We also plan to talk about what's at stake for the integrity of the court moving forward and what's at risk in our constitutional democracy should President Trump nominate an extreme ideologue and Mitch McConnell move forward with the Senate vote on that nominee. We have with us three amazing guests who are going to address different pieces of Justice Ginsburg's legacy and what's at stake. First, we'll talk with Legal's president, Kristen Browdy, about what Justice Ginsburg's loss means and what the fight ahead looks like. Then we have, of course, Professor Art Leonard with us to explore the LGBT rights jurisprudence of the justice. Finally, we have the Brennan Center's Alicia Bannon. Alicia is going to help us explore RBG's writing style, the power of persuasion, fair and impartial courts, and how we identify the next Justice Ginsburg waiting in the wings. There is a lot to talk about, so let's dig right in. Let me first welcome to the podcast Legal's president, Kristen Browdy. Kristen, how are you feeling today? Well, I've had better days. The loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is something that has been weighing heavily on many of us uh, since we learned of it last week. It's, it's uh, an awful loss for the nation and for the profession. It's been really heartbreaking this week. Um, lawyers and legal professionals feel the profound loss of Justice Ginsburg in a particular way, of course. And the public is also mourning uh, RBG as she lies in repose at the Supreme Court. It was certainly inspiring to see the army of clerks, uh, former clerks of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who were standing guard at the Supreme Court as she was laid to rest there. Um, she was really uh, idolized by women everywhere, by particularly young people, progressives. She often laughed about her, you know, notorious RBG status, but, um, but she was loved and lionized. She was perhaps an unlikely champion of feminism as someone who was a judicial incrementalist, who was very careful with her words, not really a seeker of the spotlight. Um, how has Justice Ginsburg inspired you personally and professionally? It's hard to measure just how great an impression she's had on so many of us. She came to this through the ACLU. Mm. And can you imagine having a legal director or a project director from the ACLU now try to be placed on the court? That's what she brought to the court. And that's that, that unwavering commitment to the Constitution and to, and to the protections of the Constitution had to inspire absolutely everyone. It certainly inspired me. And when she was, she was in the minority, I mean, she was on the court for a very long time, but she was in the minority for the vast preponderance of that time. Chiefs were all Republican appointed, and from a constitutional uh, interpretation perspective, vastly different from her own. And her dissents, her well thought through, carefully worded dissents, absolutely showed that there is merit 
in sticking to a position, in analyzing carefully, and in making that point. And, and you know, to, to this day, um, you know, she wore the dissent collar. She would wear a collar when she was mm. reading a dissent. Um, and many of us have earrings with that, with that collar on it. And I wear them proudly. That's amazing. I think one of her true gifts was the ability to empathize with the experiences of the most marginalized in society. And that dissent that she wrote in Shelby County v. Holder, uh, the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, really harnessed a frustration that many marginalized groups felt in a really galvanizing way. And that I dissent is so classic with her image emblazoned on it. How does she represent kind of the resistance that we're feeling right now when we feel like democracy, the Supreme Court, our um, constitutional norms are kind of slipping away from us? You know, that's, that's tough to put into words. She absolutely, through her dissents, galvanized the resistance, the opposition to some of the truly wrong-headed policy that, that we've seen in the past, you know, four years in particular, but, but even before that, before President Obama was, was in office, when we had to deal with a series of attacks on everything from voting rights to simple equality, and she stood strong. And I think it's, it's that standing strong in the face of, of uh, a, an activated, and seemingly uncaring opposition that provides the, the roadmap for what we have to do ahead of us. Many of us picture Ruth Bader Ginsburg in robes because she has been a justice for so long and before that a judge on the D.C. Circuit, but she did spend eight years as the director of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, as you mentioned, and she was known for picking unlikely plaintiffs, often males strategically in a way that would cause her male jurists at the time to relate to the experiences and injustices that women faced. What can Justice Ginsburg teach us as lawyers about storytelling, about persuasion, about empathy, about collegiality, and, and more? It isn't just empathy, although that's, that's certainly something that runs throughout so many of her opinions. Uh, it's an understanding of the 14th Amendment, uh, of, of equal protection under the law, that runs throughout so much of what she wrote and so much of what she did. I mean, think about it, Justice Antonin Scalia, um, absolutely uh, the, the opposite end of the ideological spectrum, if there is an ideological spectrum on the court. And she was able to, in spite of her absolute opposing view to so much of what Justice Scalia stood for, they were close friends. And, and that civility and that ability to stick to the law and applying the facts to the law is something that I thought that, that she did in an exemplary fashion in a way that, that we haven't seen in, in other justices in many, many years. Um, I'm thinking back to the last time we lost a woman judge from the, from the court, she retired. And she was like that too, and maybe that says something that that about the uh, the 
presence of testosterone on the Supreme Court bench that uh, drives it in a way that we don't always need. Now, I know that, that uh, the current inhabitant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has said he's going to nominate a woman, but he's going to nominate an ideologue, or so we are led to believe. And, and that's the exact opposite of where Ruth Bader Ginsburg came from, the exact opposite. You've mentioned some of the women who are on the short list of Donald Trump. And, you know, we've, we're going to talk about the legacy and, and specific jurisprudence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, during my conversation with Art Leonard. But I have to talk to you about what's at stake for the battle um, over her seat. Um, not only in terms of the hypocrisy coming from the Republicans who are getting ready to, to just go full steam ahead here, but also these potential nominees, Amy Coney Barrett, who uh, has given speeches to the Alliance Defending Freedom, the hate group, um, joined a letter opposing marriage equality, Barbara Lagoa, who upheld the poll tax in Florida that legislators imposed on the right of formerly incarcerated, uh, incarcerated uh, folks in Florida, Allison Rushing, who started off as an intern in ADF's office. Um, what is it at stake in this battle and how do we fight? Well, um, I come at it from a position, uh, all three of those nominees, potential nominees, are, are utterly unacceptable. They don't belong on any court. They are ideologues, not judges. My strategy, recognizing that, that Mitch McConnell is uh, going to have the votes, I believe, to, to ram a nominee through, is that uh, we need to flip five or six Senate seats in this election. And when we get President Biden and five or six Senate seats, we need to drastically reshape the court. And by that, I mean expanding it uh, to more justices, appoint justices, ram them through in the same way, if that's what it takes. Uh, and further, uh, look at limiting the jurisdiction of judges appointed between the years 2016, judges confirmed between the years 2016 and 2020. And then when we get done with that, after we do that, and that may take eliminating the filibuster rule in the Senate, the next step from my perspective would be that we then restore by law the requirement that Supreme Court justices must be confirmed by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. And if, if you look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an example, you remember what the vote to confirm her was? 97 to three. Now, when has there been a judge confirmed by a 97 to three margin in the past 10, 15 years? It just hasn't happened. But if you get to the point where we're picking judges, not ideologues, and we're getting to consensus, not, oh, conservative court, liberal court, then, I think we're, the country will be in a much better place. It's true. And I am deeply concerned for the failure of progressives to maybe understand this, though I hope this really brings a new awareness on, uh, onto the conversation around the election about the importance of the court. Uh, we knew, and Hillary Clinton obviously raised, that this, the court was at stake in this election. Um, in 2016, and that has certainly been true. 
what will happen to, we have a case coming up about whether the whole Affordable Care Act has to come down where the Fifth Circuit said that it has to, and that could easily divide five, uh, four, four uh, if we don't have a judge. And if we do have a new nominee who's confirmed by Trump, surely that adds to the margin to strike it down. What happens to Roe, to the Affordable Care Act, to the protections that we just won for LGBT rights if we allow religious exemptions to just sweep uh, and blow a hole through non-discrimination uh, non law? What, what's at stake? Well, that's, that's, you've you defined exactly what's at stake. And I, and I separate that out. The Affordable Care Act is one thing. Um, if that law is held to be unconstitutional, I think that would be a terrible blow. But that's, that's on one level. That's vastly different from dealing with the religious exemption, which is, which is what I believe is, is really the threat that hangs over equality in this nation right now. Yes, Justice Ginsburg and uh, a Democratic replacement were going to be so key to winning those battles going forward. There's just no way to describe how much of a, of a hole she leaves in our profession and in our nation's uh, social fabric. That's a great way to sum it up. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Kristen. My honor. Okay, if you're a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you want to hear from Professor Art Leonard, who is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal news here and abroad. And of course, LGBT Law Notes has been around for over 40 years, and since that's the case, he has been covering Justice Ginsburg since she joined the court in 1993. And of course, Justice Ginsburg was in the majority in every decision in favor of LGBTQ equality from the Supreme Court. Uh, her influence on the law, on the fight for gender justice, LGBTQ rights, racial justice, and more is undeniable. Before we dig into the LGBT equality record of Justice Ginsburg, let's talk about how it is that she earned this icon status as a champion of equality, gender justice, and um, minority rights? Well, I think it, it really stems, and I've seen quite a bit of discussion about this over the last few days, of course, uh, in, the, in the media. Uh, it stems partly from her dissenting opinions from some of the most uh, terribly egregious decisions by the Supreme Court over uh, the past few years. And she really, and she, she joined the court, as you say, back in the 1990s. She was the first of two appointees of President Bill Clinton. And at first, she wasn't uh, an outsized personality on the court, uh, in the court that she joined. But she emerged uh, later on, uh, especially once she picked up more uh, female colleagues on, on the bench. Uh, in, in some respects, she was like the center of the women on the bench because Justice Sotomayor is a bit to her left and Justice Kagan was a bit to her right. And so she was sort of the anchor in the middle there. Uh, and I think it's, it's sort of interesting that she did not write any of the significant gay rights decisions that we have. Uh, she joined, she signed other people's opinions, but uh, I think also uh, once uh, 
once Justice Kennedy retired, she would be in a position to make assignments, except for the fact that in our most important win, uh, and many people really can't uh, account for this, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts joined in on Bostock, so he got to make the to appoint uh, the person to write. It would have been it would have been a wonderful vindication of her long career uh, as a champion for minority rights and against discrimination for Justice Ginsburg to write the opinion in the Bostock case. Uh, but I think uh, I think there was a, a sort of uh, court politics going on there with Roberts assigning it to Gorsuch, mm. uh, so that it would be decided in some respects on a very narrow basis, but in other respects, in a very broad basis, this transferable beyond Title VII. Uh, and I'm sure that, that Justice Ginsburg was happy to sign on to that opinion, although it's, it seems clear to me from her questioning during the oral argument that she embraced more than that rather narrow textualist theory. So you, you, she's a champion for women's equality. She's been fighting sex discrimination and gender justice as a lawyer at the ACLU Women's Project and of course in many of her decisions at the court. Is it, how do you, how did the, that through line run through some of the LGBT rights decisions and get us to the point uh, in Bostock where it's so centrally a case about sex when we talk about LGBTQ rights and identity. Well, I think it's it's important to emphasize to people that her career as a litigator was extraordinarily important for the future of gay rights. Even though as a litigator, she didn't litigate gay rights issues. She was focused very much on uh, litigating uh, sex discrimination issues. But she managed to persuade the court, and remember this was a court that had no women justices and had never had a woman justice. She managed to persuade the nine old men of the Supreme Court that discrimination by the government on account of race, uh, rather on account of sex, raises equal protection questions. Uh, and she was able to establish, uh, for the first time, heightened scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, for a category other than race. And then in one of her most important opinions for the court, the uh, Virginia Military Academy case from 1996, to take the idea of heightened scrutiny and push it further. And she knew she couldn't put together a majority on the court for making sex a suspect classification. And the obvious reason for that is that sometimes sex is relevant to a policy in a way that race really never can be. And so there, there has to be a little bit of daylight between the two concepts. But she pushed it in that case. She said there has to be an exceedingly persuasive reason why the government is adopting this policy. It's not enough just to say that they have a, a legitimate reason, that, that there's some justification for it. It has to be exceedingly persuasive. Uh, so she managed to establish the paradigm for that. And I think the marriage equality cases are just not explicable without that. Uh, the Windsor case, the Obergefell case, they were equal protection cases. It helps, it helps a lot, especially with respect to uh, Obergefell, that uh, she had set this very high standard uh, under the equal protection clause. Uh, even though in Justice Kennedy's opinion, he made it more of a fundamental rights case than an equal protection case. But he certainly said that the two aspects of uh, 
of the 14th Amendment, equal protection and due process, they play into each other. Uh, so she was able to do that. And I think uh, one of the most important decisions, I think is a dissenting opinion by her, it's one of her rare dissents in the major gay rights cases. Uh, it's uh, her dissenting opinion in Boy Scouts, not Boy Scouts versus Dale. Uh, she didn't write in that, she just joined Stevens' dissent. But uh, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, Remember, that was ultimately a seven to two decision, although the majority was a bit fractured about rationales. But there was a dissent by Justice Ginsburg, joined by Justice Sotomayor, in which she made the very strong case that Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court was seizing on irrelevancies. That the fundamental underlying question had to be confronted between anti-discrimination and, uh, and religious freedom. And she had already signaled where she stood on that in the Hobby Lobby case when she wrote in her dissenting opinion in that case uh, that Justice Alito's mention in the majority opinion that, of course, people couldn't rely on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to defend a race discrimination case. She said in her dissent, and you know, she brought this up. It's not something that was really argued. She said, but what about gay rights cases? What about cases where uh, someone wants to discriminate against uh, gay people because of their religious beliefs? And uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat reassured by your statement that in a Title VII race discrimination case, we're not gonna let a non-religious employer raise a free exercise of religion defense. But I'm concerned, and she cited a bunch of cases where people had cited religion as a basis for discriminating against gay people. So she was very active on this front. She wasn't a passive person who always just signed on. She has some dissents there. So we know that she was in the majority in Windsor and Obergefell and Romer and Lawrence. We've talked a little bit about her dissent in Masterpiece, uh, that she was in the majority in Bostock. Um, but we have you with us and you've written the case book on LGBT rights and the law. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the role that she played in some lesser known cases on the LGBT front. We only lost her vote twice, as I can see. And they were in cases where the court was unanimously against us. They were uh, in cases such as uh, Rumsfeld versus Fair, which was about the Solomon Amendment and uh, efforts by law schools to prohibit uh, the military from recruiting because of their discriminatory policies against gay people. And then Hurley against Glib, which was the Boston uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade case. Uh, but other than that, we have one opinion by her in a gay rights case. That's a majority opinion. And that's uh, Christian Legal Society against Martinez. That was about uh, a law school non-discrimination policy, uh, which for prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation. And they uh, revoked recognition of the Christian Legal Society on their campus because of its exclusionary membership and officer policies. They would exclude homosexuals. And she wrote for the court. And in order to put together a majority there, she changed it from being a gay rights case. It was a very canny decision. She, she seized upon a stipulation early in the litigation that in fact, the effect of the anti-discrimination policy was to say to student organizations, you may not have exclusionary membership standards. Anyone who's a student in good standing 
at this law school can join any student organization they want to. They call it the all comers policy. Anyone who wants to join has a right to join. I mean, they can be ex uh, expelled or they're disruptive or something like that. <laughs> but uh, so she repurposed it that way. And by doing that, she was able to put together her majority. She got Justice Kennedy, although he didn't sign her opinion. He wrote a concurring opinion uh, stating concerns about, you know, religious organizations and a furious dissent by uh, Justice Alito in that case. But the point is she figured out a way to bring a majority of the court to uphold the anti-discrimination policy and therefore to guard the rights of gay people in public universities throughout this country to join student organizations that they want to join and, and to not be excluded if, of course, their school adopts a non-discrimination policy. And remember, she was the first sitting justice to perform a same-sex marriage. And she did it before Obergefell. She did it when once it became legal. It became legal in D.C. several years before Obergefell. So she conducted same-sex weddings. And uh, then there was a move on by the conservatives to force her to recuse in Obergefell. And she said she, just, she wasn't going to recuse in Obergefell. I love that. Thank you so much, Art, for speaking with us today. I look forward to talking to you more about uh, Justice Ginsburg's legacy as we continue with this podcast in the uh, months and years to come. And of course, uh, to talk with you about how the Supreme Court changes in her absence. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, and finally, we're going to chat with Alicia Bannon, who's the Managing Director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, Alicia, it's so good to talk with you. How are you today? You know, doing doing all right. Obviously, it's it's been a it's been a sad week with the passage the passing of of Justice Ginsburg. And you know, I'm I'm a mom with young kids, so we're also having the the start of, of remote school on top of everything else. So it's it's been it's been quite a week. So let's dig right in and talk about Justice Ginsburg's legacy. At her confirmation hearings, she invoked the women um, that had fought. And, and were unsung heroes of the work for equal citizenship. People like Susan B. Anthony, Harriet Tubman. She talked about their courage, their path-breaking legacies. How does Justice Ginsburg's legacy fit in with those women? Well, I mean, it's a remarkable legacy. She was a, a civil rights icon before she even reached the bench. You know, she did pathbreaking work um, in at the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, um, fighting for for gender equality in the court as an as an advocate, winning, you know, really changing the law, changing um, changing the changing the face of equality in America for for women even before she she reached the bench. And then, you know, it was it was then seeing her, um, you know, a, as a judge, you know, taking on those issues, as well as you know, other other you know causes for for rights and equality, and you know what a and her remarkable run as a as a Supreme Court justice. I mean, a few a few of her decisions that that really stood out for me. One was one right at the start of her her time as a justice, which was the um, a case where the Supreme Court ordered uh, the Virginia military 
Institute, VMI, to admit women because they, they had not. And, you know, these were the sorts of cases that she had litigated as an advocate and was really kind of the culmination of her work because one of the things the court found was that you have to give that extra scrutiny if you're discriminating um, on the basis of sex. And, you know, towards the end of her opinion, she wrote the majority opinion. She had, uh, you know, she sort of had this reflection about how so much of the history of our country and our constitution has been expanding the notion of who's part of we the people and including people that for so long had been marginalized. And, you know, that, that really struck me both, you know, as a reflection of, of her work, but then also as her broader legacy. You bring up an important point about the importance of diversity on the court. And I know you've written a lot about that, but how important is it that there were times where Justice Ginsburg was the only woman on the court, sometimes uh, just her and uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, and then she was also one of the few that's been a public interest lawyer. Um, certainly, you know, Thurgood Marshall comes to mind. Um, but how important is that for a justice to bring um, experience as a public interest lawyer? What, what was her background and how did, it, how did it inform who she was as a justice and do we need more like her? Absolutely. I mean, diversity matters, you know, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, diversity of professional experience, diversity of a whole host of life experience is so critical to the development of the law to, um, you know, I mean, thinking about how for so much of our history, it was such a narrow set of people who are empowered to actually make the law and we kind of still live with that legacy. Um, but then we also now with with pathbreakers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we've also benefited from from people who have brought some diverse life experiences and I mean hers you know she was the child of immigrants she grew up poor she um, was a, a public interest lawyer and a civil rights advocate a civil rights icon um, she brought all of those life experiences to the bench um, you know one one story thinking about kind of the importance of diversity on the bench that that really stayed with me about Justice Ginsburg was one when she was at the time, the only woman on the Supreme Court. So Justice O'Connor had stepped down a few years earlier, and um, the, the court was hearing a case involving the strip search of a 13-year-old girl because they suspected that she basically had the equivalent of a couple Advils hidden. And so they did a strip search, and the question for the court was, was that, was that constitutional? And during the oral argument, the justices, many of the justices were kind of cracking jokes, talking about, you know, locker rooms in high school and things like that. And, you know, she recounted later how, you know, she basically said to her colleagues, you don't know what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl. You don't know how humiliating that experience was, and you are making light of something because your life experience is is not informing your judging in the way that it needs to. And you know, she called out her colleagues and she convinced them. And ultimately, the court um, eight to one, Justice Thomas dissented, but eight to one, they they found that her, you know, that girl's rights had been violated. One of the things that that story uh, brings up for me is how often we hear um, the words empathy and persuasion used when talking about Justice Ginsburg and her legacy. Was it something about those skills that made her uh, particularly effective justice? I, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think 
you know, I, I certainly think her empathy, you know, and some of that I think is informed by her background as a civil rights lawyer and from, you know, her own, her own childhood as well, I think very much approached, you know, it affected her approach to, to judging and, you know, and her, her persuasiveness as well. Um, you, you know, I mean, I think, especially in the later years, some of her most um, substantial contributions were often in dissent. And I think, you know, part of what was also so powerful was, you know, her willingness to speak truth to power, to call out hypocrisy, to state very plainly when she saw an injustice that was was occurring. And I think that's part of why, you know, she she kind of became a celebrity, you know, in some of her later years, you know, as, as you know, younger people saw this, you know, sort of seemingly, you know, mild mannered person writing these biting dissents, really calling out the hypocrisy that she was seeing in front of her. And, you know, I think, I think that's part of her, her legacy too. You know, one of her most famous dissents was in the Shelby County case where the, uh, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act on, you know, the theory of good news, racial discrimination is over, don't need to worry about that anymore. So we don't, we don't need to, to, to worry about these preclearance provisions, um, you know, and, 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 and really weakened in a very dramatic way, um, the Voting Rights Act. And she, you know, she wrote this blistering dissent with this line that, you know, I, I quote, you know, once a week about how, you know, to say that you didn't need the Voting Rights Act was like saying that in the middle of a rainstorm, Storm, you didn't need the umbrella because the umbrella was keeping you dry. You know, the point was the Voting Rights Act was doing its job. So if you weren't seeing all of these, you know, acts of, of voter suppression, it's exactly because the Voting Rights Act was doing what it was supposed to do. And she was, of course, proven right basically immediately. You know, hours later, you saw, you know, sort of voter, you saw voter suppression laws um, be passed in places that otherwise would have been um, barred under the, the Voting Rights Act or had to have gone through through preclearance under the Voting Rights Act. So, I mean, I think it was her, her, you know, her intellect. I think it was her, her willingness to sort of speak out and, and call out injustice and the fact that she had a way with words. You know, that, that image of the umbrella is just a really evocative one. Let's talk a little bit about um, the integrity of the court as an institution. Uh, you wrote a piece where you talked about how if Mitch McConnell follows through on the pledge that he'll consider uh, a Trump nominee and maybe jam them through before the election or in a lame duck, that not only is it rank hypocrisy because of the standard that he put forth during uh, Obama's uh, tenure and nomination of Merrick Garland, but also that it would do a profound disservice and erode the uh, integrity of the court and and our democracy. Can you talk about why that is? Absolutely. I think it is incredibly dangerous and destructive, The what it looks like Republican leaders are set to do, which is to jam through this nominee um, after in 2016 saying loud and clear that we should let the voters decide. I think it would be just an exercise of raw politics, plain and simple, and I think it would be deeply hypocritical. And, you know, I, I feel like sometimes those kinds of claims about hypocrisy, they can kind of seem like, well, isn't this just politics as usual? But I, I think it is incredibly dangerous for our democracy what we're seeing right now, especially because this has to do with the courts. You know, courts, they, they don't have armies. They don't have the power of the purse. Like courts rely on the um, 
Courts rely on public trust and confidence in the institution. They rely on their public legitimacy. And if that public legitimacy goes away, we are in a very dangerous moment for the rule of law. If people don't believe that they need to, to follow decisions when they don't like the outcomes because this is just another political body, that is a really dangerous moment that we're in for our democracy. And I, I think that that's what we are, we are teeing up to see, like a genuine legitimacy crisis for the judiciary. And, you know, as much as, as much as I sometimes am frustrated by the judiciary myself, like I think, you know, having that basic level of, um, of, of public respect is critically important because ultimately, you know, courts are, are making decisions on a whole host of areas that, you know, order our society. And if, and if they lose that public legitimacy, I think, you know, our, our democracy is at risk in a really profound way. I think that this will be a deeply destabilizing act for um, for the court. And, you know, I, I think that you will see coming from that probably a lot of other norms that start getting broken as well. You know, I think you could, I think it is certainly likely, and you're already hearing rumblings of this, that there will be a serious effort to um, add additional seats to the Supreme Court. There may be other kinds of court reform um, efforts as well, um, you know, in terms of what's likely to actually happen. I, mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know that I have a, a great prediction about exactly where we're going to land. But I think that if this happens, I think it's going to be very destabilizing to the to the courts. And I think you're going to see a lot of kinds of proposals that have not been mainstream up till now suddenly get a much, you know, a much more serious consideration. It seems the other danger that we're heading into is that the court is so, we've, we've had so many appointments that are so far to the right and that the, we run the risk that the court will be so out of step with where the majority of the country is that, you know, when you talk about public confidence, if you totally uh, don't match where the people are, of course, courts serve a counter-majoritarian function. Um, but in, in many ways, if you lose the center, um, you lose that public confidence. And if if, if lawyers, if the general public feel that you go before the justices and you're not gonna get a fair shot and your case doesn't have a chance of winning, no matter what arguments you put forward, there's, um, what does that do to the courts? Well, I think that's such a critically important question, Eric. And, you know, it's interesting because the, the court has, over the years, made a lot of very controversial decisions, and often those will lead to predictions that, you know, this is it, the courts, you know, this is going to be it for the court's legitimacy, this is going to be it for public confidence in the court. And one thing that has been pretty consistent is that even though those will often lead to kind of a short-term dip, like confidence, confidence kind of bounces back. And I think one of the reasons why is that, you know, historically and even you know as reflected in the most recent supreme court term sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and you know the the court has not been so ideologically in lockstep that there is kind of one side that is just constantly on the losing side you know one side more than other others but still there there have been there have been surprises right there have been instances where um 
you know, justices, you know, have been swing votes, they've gone to the other side. And so it has never been the instance in our modern history that you've had a court that is so sharply ideologically divided that essentially one side always wins. And there's some really interesting scholarship kind of looking at kind of how people think and kind of the bases of legitimacy that suggests that, you know, that could be the tipping point. If you have a dynamic where at, like one side is always losing, that that could really be something where public confidence in the court and the public legitimacy of the court is, is devastated. Studying um, the judges that, that you do in, at the state level and uh, on the federal bench, um, do you see that we're, do you have confidence that we are um, lifting up as a profession uh, the next, making it possible for the next uh, Justice Ginsburg or people to carry on uh, with, with the work that she's done? I mean, there are obviously a number of, you know, really wonderful, accomplished, um, you know, civil rights lawyers and others um, who, you know, I think would be, you know, should be on like kind of a short list for the bench. I think one thing that we've seen, not just in the federal courts, but also in the state courts, is that the pipeline to the bench, if you look at kind of who's getting these lower court decisions, lower court positions, who's landing on our state Supreme Courts, who's landing in our lower federal courts, that there is a real striking lack of diversity um, on all of those benches. And that includes professional diversity. So overwhelmingly, the people who sit on the bench are um, come from corporate backgrounds or prosecutors back, prosecutor backgrounds. Having a public interest lawyer like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is virtually unheard of right now um, in both the state and the federal judiciaries. Um, and then you also have a, a shocking lack of racial and ethnic diversity. The Brennan Center um, has been looking at, um, you know, did a study looking at all 50 states and the composition of their highest courts, the state Supreme Courts across the country. 23 states currently have all white state Supreme Court benches. That includes 12 states where people of color are at least 20% of the population. So you have a real striking, shocking lack of diversity and benches that really do not reflect the communities that they're supposed to serve. And when you think about pipeline building, when you think about who's teed up then to land in the Supreme Court and become the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, you really see that we, you know, overwhelmingly we're not drawing from the full population of, of qualified lawyers that we should be in building that bench. That's right. I, I just, I, any opportunity that we get where the nation is focusing on courts at all is an opportunity for us to go to the public and talk about the importance of state courts and uh, that they decide so many of the cases that impact our lives. Yes, the Supreme Court matters tremendously, but there are so many ways that we need to be uh, helping to make our democracy function by working at the state levels to make sure that we have a diverse and talented uh, bench that's that's really living up to the promise of, of fair and impartial justice for all. Absolutely. 95% of all cases are filed in state court. And so in terms of how people are most directly touching and being touched by our justice system, overwhelmingly, it is in state courts across the country. And yet we don't talk about them. We don't think about them. We don't pay attention to the ways that they're working or not working and the ways that we need to strengthen them so that they can be places that provide equal justice for all comers. 
Well, that's one of the reasons why I love speaking with you because I'm a state court nerd as well. And I do love that, you know, here at, at Legal, we, we have a judiciary committee that works to make sure that judges at the city, at the state level are fair and impartial um, when it comes to LGBT individuals. We definitely need lawyers to get more involved in the effort to make sure that fair court we have fair courts and that they throw their hat in the ring or seek nominations, a pathway to the bench. I, well, I, I know you are a state court nerd and I love that about you and I'm so excited. Um, you know, you are doing such critical, critical work. And just to echo, you know, people should apply to become judges. You know, I think one of the most important steps to take in building that pipeline is to, you know, for people to think, you know, hey, that could be me. Yes, hopefully listening out there is the next uh, Justice Ginsburg, someone who will follow in her footsteps and continue the fight for gender justice and equality for all. I think we'll leave it there. Alicia, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's so good to chat with you and to talk about uh, Justice Ginsburg in this way. Thank you for having me. It was really wonderful having the chance to chat. And thank you so much for listening. I can assure you that we have some really great content coming up on this podcast where we'll be focusing on the uh, Supreme Court battle, the record of whoever is nominated by the Trump administration, um, and what's at stake for LGBT people coming before the court. Uh, we have some experts that will be coming up and talking about those topics. We are gearing up for the fight and we're preparing you to be uh, happy warriors in that battle. Thank you so much for listening. This and future podcasts can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Visit us, like us, give us five stars, leave a review. It's the way that others find out about this podcast. We will be back very soon. 